Good morning. Today's verses are from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. It's on page 910 in the Pew Bible. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Please pray with me. Father, we're thankful that though we don't deserve it, you sent your son to die for us, for the sins that we commit daily. And Lord, we ask that you will help us to though we can never be perfect as he was, just to strive to be as good as as we can be with your help, Lord, to strive to to stay away from those sins that just plague us every day. We thank you, Lord, for this Veterans Day, for all the men and women who have fought and died for this country, Lord. And, and Lord, we pray that... uh, Though there will never be peace here on this earth, there will be peace in you. We're thankful that through Jesus we have an opportunity to spend an eternity with you in peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a society that is ravaged, as we once were, with the weight of the guilt of sin. One of the reasons we know this is we have a, an opiate problem in, a, in America that is, is reaching on astronomical proportions. Uh, we, we have debt loads that are to astronomical proportions, where, where the numbers can't even be fathomed anymore. 
and, and we could go on and on and on. And there's, there's no need to do it. Other than to say that it, it's very clear. That there are many, many, many. Who wake up every day with the weight of the guilt of their sin. Bearing down upon their shoulders to such an extent that. What's even the point of today? Why even give it a, another try? Uh, I've made not one mistake. I made the mistake again and then I, I did it again and then I, I did it again. And oh man, I hate that I did it and I did it again. And it's now been years and years. And what's the point? I, I can't get it all back. And they sink into this morbid depression where there's just no hope. And so then there's the medication route. Let's try drugs, let's try alcohol, let's try sex, let's try whatever we can to just make it go away. And really what we could say to them is that you have taken all of those mistakes which the Bible calls sin. And you've allowed them, and they have been, and they are in your sinfulness, your identity. That's you. And you well know it, and you hate it. This struggle of having our sin be our identity, unfortunately, is not immune to the Christian. Even the Christian today can look back upon the mistakes that they made even this past week and think, I mean, look, what's the point? I messed up again. I I yelled at my kids again. I spoke sharply to my wife again. I looked at pornography again. I did whatever again. And yet the answer that the Bible gives is not one of some sort of self-focus or self-confidence. That somehow you're, you're just awesome. Or you're just, you're just better. Or you're loved. Or, or whatever the phrases are that would be, would be given as some pithy quote. That somehow is supposed to leave, relieve this crushing burden of guilt that may be upon your shoulders even as the Christian. Actually, the Bible would tell us. You're worse than you think you are. But God is bigger and more gracious and more perfect and more powerful and more in control than you can possibly think. And you're looking the wrong direction. I don't know what the aura or the feeling or the The thought that was running through the people's minds as Peter stood up to preach this first sermon. But surely there had to be some in the group that began to get the picture pretty quickly. Guys, we just made a really big mistake. This whole Jesus thing that we've been watching for the past couple years, he was a lot more than we wanted to give him credit for. And oh boy. I think Peter in some ways is is letting them know, you who killed Christ are unable to thwart the perfect plan of the sovereign God. And he's not just risen, he's not just alive, he's actually the Lord and Savior. And you must now reckon with that idea. One of the reasons why I think this is, if you're looking at your Bibles in verses 22 through 36, we won't, I won't have time, but you could note the, the number of times he uses the word God. Uh, eight plus times 
And those few short verses, God, God, attested to you by God, signs that God did. Foreknowledge of God, God raised him up. And, I, and I've just gone through just two verses. I think the text argues for us this morning. That God's sovereign plan cannot be thwarted by the sin of humanity. And for the Christian today, there isn't much better news than that. That the sin of this past week, or even this morning, is not and cannot thwart the sovereign and eternal plan of God. It cannot, it, it does not tie God's hands. It does not make him unable to work upon the behalf of his people. Well, let's see how Peter sets this up. As we looked at last week in verses 14 through 21, Peter has stood and, and is beginning to preach what could be called the first Christian sermon. The first uh, sermon of the new church, if you will. And he took as his text, Joel chapter 2. And he reads the text and he's not expounded upon the text. And so we find ourselves in verses 22 through 36 this morning, him doing just that. Having taken the text, he now expounds upon it, and then he applies the text, continuing to use other cross-references in Scripture to explain more fully the point that he is trying to make. You could say this, that Peter's main theme of this sermon is not just to prove the identity of Jesus Christ, is not just to help them understand why what they're seeing is that the fact the Holy Spirit has been given by Christ, But his main theme is found all the way in verse 36. He's driving this sermon to this one main idea. And that is, he's seeking to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. He wants them to know that clearly. It is not just enough that they would know that the Holy Spirit has been given by Christ. But he, Peter, knows well. By the gift of the Holy Spirit within him and through him. That what is most needed here. Is that that these people reckon with who Jesus Christ is. And will they submit to him? Or will they continue to operate in rebellion against him? I've divided the passage into a, a number of different points. This first point will be verses 22 through 24. And then we'll take uh, 25 through 31, 32 through 35, and 36. This first point, 22 through 24, I'm just using P for uh, a helpful way to jot in your notes. This is the plan. The plan, if you will. Notice what it says. Men of Israel, hear these words. So he's not beginning a new idea. He's actually just read the text and then he calls them. Listen to what I've just read. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and signs and wonders that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God attested. God declared. God made known to you through signs and wonders. So the feeding of the 5,000, wonderful thing. Healing of the leper, wonderful thing. 
didn't exist just to help those who were hungry or help those who were needy. The entire existence, the reason for these signs and wonders was to prove that this man was not any other man. He was the Messiah. There's other ways that he proved it, such as the sign of the voice from heaven. And Matthew 3.17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. If you're looking at the text, you just follow the flow of what God is doing here. God attests. God delivers him up to these people. You killed God raised. And in, later on in verse 32, we'll pick up in a minute. Peter continues with picking up where he leaves off here in 24 with God raised. He, he's entirely about declaring to these people what God is doing. This isn't a sermon about, let me help you understand what, what you've done and, and how to think more clearly about what... No, he wants these people to think about God. And who God is and what God is doing. God delivered him. God sent Christ. God decreed that this would be the way he was going to save many. According to this definite plan and foreknowledge, God knew the death of Christ was no plan B for God the Father. This was plan A. But Peter wants them to know you, for all the sovereignty of God in this, you killed him. You crucified him. You put him on the cross. As much as we would like to be able to understand the depth of how God is completely and wholly sovereign over everything. And yet man are responsible for the putting of this one upon the cross. Scripture never questions to be this to be true. It, it, it completely affirms it across the board. That humanity is responsible for what they do. And yet God is completely and wholly sovereign over all of these things. J.A. Alexander, in his commentary upon the book of Acts, says this. When God gave him up, they took him. But when they crucified him, God raised him up. God knew this was going to take place. He even foreordained this to take place. It had to happen in this way. And yet he has never lost control of what's going on. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. G. Bertram, a uh, theologian, says this. The abyss can no more hold the redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ Jesus could not remain in the grave because there was no sin within him. He took took our sin upon him, but he in himself was perfect. Therefore, he needed not to take on the wages of sin, eternal death. See, Peter is driving in this first few verses... To the point that he's going to make in verse 25. And that is. Christ is raised. 
you killed him, God raised him. And the resurrection being that which is the hope for the Christian. That we too will also be raised because Christ was raised. And yet also, for the non-Christian, the terror. We tried to kill him. But he's alive. And if he's alive, as Peter will begin to move here, what will we do? And how will we respond? I want us to realize here, when I will stand in the announcements and welcome and say, oftentimes, that our service is, is structured around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll say we something to the effect of we hold uh, the gospel in a very simple way that you could put it on four different pegs. God, man, Christ in response. What we see very clearly here in Peter's first sermon is that God is at the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ. the, The gospel begins with God. He's the creator of the universe. And if he's the creator, he's the sustainer. He's the author of life. The gospel is entirely about God. How sinful man relates to such a God of wonder and majesty and perfection and holiness. It's entirely about the love of God to send his only son to die. It's entirely about the justice of God that sin must be punished. It's about the power of God to raise Christ Jesus from the dead. It's about the call of God upon the hearts of men to repent and believe, to place their trust in the divinely ordained path to salvation through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Really what he's calling and, and, and every pastor should do, and I hope that I grow in this, and that is we are to call, we are to be called to reckon with God. Who is he? Is is he really the Alpha and the Omega? And what does that mean? That he's the beginning and the end. What does it mean for us that he's the creator of the universe? What does he mean that he's the Lord of land and sky? What does that mean for me today? We have here in these first few verses a one of the clearest passages upon the sovereignty of God. That God is divinely structuring all the events of history. And, and this is not something new when we get to verse 22 through 24 of Acts 2. It's not something that it's the first time we've, we've heard about this. We could go all the way back to, to Genesis 3. And Adam and Eve and, and the rebellion against him in the garden. And it wasn't as if at that point God threw up his hands and said, oh, I can't do anything out with this now. Look what my creation did. It's all hope. No. He knew and he Ordained, and he guided, and he worked. Even Genesis three fifteen, we have this promised hope that from even all of this misery and pain and sinful rebellion, there is one that was going to come that was going to put an end to all of it, crush the head of the serpent, Christ. We can see this in Joseph. Why was Joseph thrown into the pit? Why was Joseph sold into slavery? And we find out at the end of Genesis. Chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, where he tells, Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We can see this with Moses and Pharaoh. That God would harden the heart of Pharaoh. He hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Why? For the good of many, his people. 
can see what he's doing sovereignly to tell us that one day there's going to be a new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Where he's going to put his spirit within us. He's going to replace these hearts of stone with the hearts of flesh. He knows what's coming. Why in Matthew chapter 2 it does he tell Joseph and Mary fly to Egypt. He knows what's coming. He's sovereignly in control of all things. That Herod was going to wipe out many, many children. Why in Matthew 26, verse 52 through 56, does Christ tell those that are with him that he could call upon 12 legions of angels and they would immediately be with him to rescue him from this pain and misery that is the crucifixion? God knows. And God is all powerful to work upon behalf of his people and for his glory and for the good of the world. We see this all the way into Revelation chapter 2 and 3 where Christ is at the center of his church. Currently ruling, currently reigning, currently shepherding, currently pastoring his church. Knowing full well the events of what's taking place within his church. God is sovereign. There is no doubt about this in scripture. And yet, is this not the, 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 the crux of our most difficult points in life? Proverbs 16, verse 9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Is it not when we desire to plan our way and yet also establish our steps, and then God's divine, sovereign plan diverges from our expectations and now he he's going this way but we're thinking well no I planned my way I thought we were going this way God and now you want to take me this way you got to be wrong surely God is wrong right no he's perfect he's sovereign will we submit to his Way And is that not the most challenging time where it's this wrestle with, is it really what he's doing? I want it this way. And surrendering our expectations to him. Brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you with this idea that the great plan that God has is that of salvation. And he has worked out that plan through Jesus Christ. And if he can do that, that should give us confidence in all his other sub-plans that he has for each one of us. We sang it this morning. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. We may not know where he is or how he is getting us to final glory. And the, the different paths he's going to take for every one of us. But we do know where he for the Christian is taking us. And that is a destination of heaven. Where we will see there the glory of Christ and our glorification with him. And may we trust him in that sovereign plan. Well, let's look at the second point. Prophecy. We have the plan in verse 22 through 24. But we have prophecy. Peter now goes back to the Old Testament to prove his point of the resurrection of Christ and God's sovereign control over it. And he does this in verse 25 through 31. He quotes from Psalm 16, and I would encourage you to turn in your Bible there. I won't read the entirety of it, but it's helpful for you to see what is taking place in Psalm 16. What we have for us in verse 25 through 28 of Acts chapter 2 is the last few verses of Psalm 16. But Psalm 16 is written by David. 
And it begins in verse 1 with a prayer of help from God. Where you have David the king crying out to God for help in whatever matters is going on in his life. Preserve me, O God, he says, for in you I take refuge. He goes on in verses 2 through 6 of Psalm 16 to affirm his commitment to God. It should be noted that he's not yet seen God's answer to his prayer. But he is affirming not only his commitment to God, but even what God is and has done in his life. And then we get to this last few verses, which is verses 7 through 11, where we have a statement of praise to God. And that's where we see this, these, these few verses that Peter quotes. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, for my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter changes the the tense of the psalm. He, he shifts it. He, he is doing something here. He's using a text. Referring to this text. As one that points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His reasoning is this. David wrote the psalm. But David died and was buried. Some commentators believe that they may have been on the south side of Jerusalem at this point where David's uh, tomb was known to be in the sense of, hey, you guys can go down there and see the tomb. He's, he's still in there. He hasn't risen. He was buried. Therefore, David must have been writing not about himself, but of his greater son, a descendant not yet born, one that would fulfill God's promise of a son of David always to be upon the throne. You see in verse 27 of Acts 2, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. In the sense that after death, he would not experience the corruption of hell, but would be in the presence of God. He, he knew, David, well, the promise of God. Second Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Psalm 132, verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Peter's simply saying, look, this couldn't have been David. This is further proof in the scriptures that Jesus Christ is written, risen. And we have for us also the encouragement here in verse 25 of Acts 2. I saw the Lord always before me. It, it's this idea that David in his time of need, with eyes of faith, set his eyes upon the Lord. And that's what led him to praise. And even for... The people who are hearing this sermon, the call for them and the call for even us is to set our eyes upon the resurrection Jesus Christ. To set our eyes upon Christ when we may not know the answer to our prayer. And that will lead us to praise. That's what happens in Psalm 16. But then Peter expounds upon this passage. He explains why he uses it. You can see that in verse 29, and I've already basically said it. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
But he was a prophet. God used him to foretell of one that was yet to come. Now Peter begins to land the plane. He begins to bring home the point of the sermon in this third section, verse 32 through 35. A promise poured out. You may remember I said in verse 22 through 24 that... It was entirely about God, that God attested, that God delivered, that they killed and yet God raised. And here, Peter picks right back up in verse 32 with God raised. This Jesus, he says, God raised up of all we are witnesses. And he continues with this declaration of the glory of God. God not only raised, God exalted And that Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And you see in verse 33 there, a working of the Trinity. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, that's Jesus Christ. Having received from the Father, that's God the Father. The promise of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What you're seeing, O men of Jerusalem, men of Israel, is the outworking of... Jesus Christ been given the been given the Holy Spirit by God to pour out upon all mankind. He's exalted. God gives the Holy Spirit. Christ pours out the Holy Spirit. In that, continuing to drive to this idea that Jesus Christ is not just the Messiah; He's Lord as well, Lord and Christ. If Christ has the authority. To pour out the spirit. Then he must be something more than just resurrected. Because he says in verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself says. The Lord said to my Lord. Sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Until I subjugate all your enemies. This title Lord here that he's using. It's not just some title of courtesy. But it's a title of authority. It's the title of that's that's thought about in Philippians 2 verse 9. The name above every name. So finally, not only are they to recognize the plan of God and the prophecy that is to be fulfilled and the promise that was poured out of the Holy Spirit 32 through 35, but finally he brings it to its completion with a call to action, a call to response. In verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, or you could put it this way, may you become aware, may you perceive that God has made him, Jesus Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It was not enough to simply convince his hearers that Christ is the authority behind the manifestation of the Spirit upon the lives of these people. But that Christ is Lord. We preach Christ crucified, but all for the purpose of preaching that Christ is Lord. Be convinced, he says, God has made this Jesus both Lord. He's been given the right to rule and Christ as the anointed one whom you crucified. 
Not that he was made at the ascension, as it says. But all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him. Not that he was made at the ascension, the Messiah, but that he was already the Messiah as the second person of the Trinity. Peter is, is highlighting. He's, he's heightening for these people the terrible nature of what they've just done. Of putting not just a man to death, but the Messiah to death. You who crucified him. God had made him the Messiah and you crucified him. The call here, the response Peter's calling for is, what are you going to do with that? Because that's exactly what we'll see in coming weeks in verse 37. Brothers, what should we do? No. They recognize, not that they just should think better about themselves or Somehow manage the, the, the guilt of what they've done. But Peter's actually pressing into that and saying. No. You must reckon with. The guilt of your sin. Hebrews 7. Verse 25. Consequently he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ is Lord. Which he is. Then. He who has. Not only. Been risen from the dead. But also exalted. He who has all authority. When Christ saves. He saves completely. He doesn't leave you with 1%. To try to. Figure out how to deal with the guilt of your sin. He covers it all. He takes it completely. And then he makes intercession for us. Brothers and sisters, I uh, I don't know entirely what's going on in every one of your lives. I, I could never know that. I don't know what's going on in the thoughts of your hearts. But I, it has to be attested to you this morning that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there's nothing better than that. That he's in sovereign control of everything. And that there is, there is no amount of sinful humanity that can thwart God's good plan for his children. If you're his. Uh, Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. I even have trouble reading that because it's just become a refrigerator verse for so many people. It's just a t-shirt. It's just put on a banner that you run through at the high school football game. Do, Do we really recognize this? That God can and will Overcome our sinfulness and guide and direct it for His glory. He took the fall of Adam and He directed it. He took the, the hardness of Pharaoh and He used it. He, he took the sinfulness and the murder of Herod and He guided it. He took the sin of Israel and brought Christ. He took our sin and our sin could not restrain his grace to save to the fullest. Is there not, is there anything left that that God cannot sovereignly work over and through? 
And scripture says clearly no. Do you doubt today his goodness in the midst of your trial or pain? Well then let's look to the evidence of Jesus Christ. He's ascended. He's Lord and Christ. Though man in our rebellion against him might have tried everything we possibly could to get our way, God's way still rules. And his way is perfect. And for those in Christ now, we, 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 can, we can look at it and, and just delight. What we, what we end up finding here is in the tail end of Acts 2, is these early believers just in delight to be with one another. They've all been rescued. They've all been redeemed. They've all been adopted. And they just can't get enough of being together and devoting themselves to teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And it's just a sense of it doesn't get any better. Heaven awaits. I've been saved. God has overcome my sin. And the same is true for us today. And may we be those who respond in much the same way. With great delight and gladness and joy of heart. To know that God is not thwarted by our sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. But even more, we thank you for the word of God. That stands true forever and ever. That the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To save the sinner. To reconcile sinful man to holy God. Was as true for those in and under the sound of Peter's voice. That first sermon as it is true for us. And for those, as, as, as happened that day, who will repent and believe, they shall be saved. Father, we thank you for your sovereign plan that it is good. And even this morning we pause and we thank you that we don't understand it. But you've given us the faith to believe it. And we ask that you would strengthen our faith when it wanes. Father, it is oftentimes in uh, the most clear moments of, of seeing our sin or the most clear trials when things are very tough that the question of our understanding of the sovereignty of God is most clearly challenged. Do we believe this? Do we hold to this? And Father, it is in the understanding of your sovereign control of all things that you are perfect and that you are, you are good and that you are all-knowing, that you are all-present, where we find not the answers to why, but the answer to who is behind these things. And we even see in scripture 
what you are intending to do with these things in our lives. And that is to conform us to the image of your son. For Christ to gain glory. For you to move us to glorification. Or one day we will be in your presence for all of eternity. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us in our time of uh, fellowship as we eat with one another. That we would be encouraged for this coming week to know that we have those who love us. We have a brother, we have a sister in the Lord who is praying for us, who is calling us to remember the truths of Scripture, who will be a, a shoulder when we need one to lean on but also a a hand and a voice calling us and pointing us to look to Christ. To strengthen our eyes of faith that we might look to you more fully this week. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.